Greetings. Welcome back to Sick Flick. Uh, I'm so excited to be back. I'm so happy to have you back here with me. If you have forgotten about this podcast, Sick Flick is a stream of consciousness podcast that talks about everything under the sun regarding film and television. I'm your host, August Dunson. I am so, 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 so glad to be back and to start doing this podcast again. Um, so yeah, if you've been wondering where we've been, we took a little hiatus. Essentially, school during COVID times is a lot harder than I think anybody expected it would be. And so I kind of had to dedicate my entire life to finishing up this last year of school. Thankfully, that is behind us. And I'm just ready to get, I'm just ready to get on and I'm ready to get on with this podcast. I'm ready to start doing it again. So yeah, we've also made some improvements. Some things have changed if you're watching on YouTube and things will continue to change. But if you stick beside us, it will all pay off in the end. I can promise you. Um, so yeah, I'm ready to get started with this episode. Without further ado, we ended off still doing our Pride series. And even though I have abandoned this podcast for a couple of months, I still want to finish out this Pride series with the last episode. So if you don't remember, I started a Pride series a while ago where essentially the past six episodes, I think, we talked about different queer films um, and the importance of them all, the conversations they started, a lot of, you know, extra things regarding those movies. Um, if you haven't seen that series, I definitely recommend watching it. It was a hell of a lot of fun to do, and I'm ready to finish it out with a bang with our queer episode. So yes, I went through all of the major communities within the LGBTQ plus community. And our last one, we're ending with queer um, films. So we'll be talking about different queer films and their importance, why I enjoyed them, the whole shebang. Also, for the regular scheduling of the podcast or the regular setup of the podcast I like to do a like what's happening in the entertainment world segment at the beginning granted for our um pride series I changed that up to be our queer cinema facts and for this queer episode it's not going to follow the exact same setup as the other episodes um just because this is kind of the melting pot <laughs> of queer cinema. Um, so first I want to go over the GLAAD report. That is kind of the big report that comes out yearly for um, queer representation. We're going to be focusing on the 2019 film, so the 2020 report, just because the 2021 report um, focused mostly on television shows, just because there weren't a lot of films that came out of the 2020 period. Um, so I decided to focus on the 2019 just so that we could talk a little bit more about films. And then we're going to move on to discussing um, 
new queer cinema because I think that is a very important aspect of queer film history that we haven't talked about yet. So moving on to the GLAD reports. Um, so for the first one, out of 118 films counted in 2019, the overall number of queer characters represented on screen, screen was about 18% or 22 films out of the 118. That was actually an increase from 2018. Did I say 2019 or 2018? I don't remember. But the 2019 report or the 2019 films was um, an increase from films that they reported in 2018 by just about two films. So I guess in 2018, they only had 20 films out of how many they um, recorded or researched. And this past report, they had 22 films. It um, was a decrease, though, in lesbian and bisexual representation and then um, as well as racial diversity. So it says that in the report that the racial diversity actually decreased 34 percent um, in 2019 from 42 percent in 2018. And then that was also decreased from 57 percent in 2017. Which is interesting to note just how you can see a steady decline in racial diversity or um, the representation of like queer characters of color, um, which I feel like I definitely have been seeing more of. You, you definitely notice just overall in media, um, especially with like the boom. I don't want to say boom, but... You know, you think back of like the 90s or early 2000s and then you look at a lot of films today and you're like, you know, how has our um, characters of color or just, you know, um, representation, you've kind of seen that gone down in recent years. So that's really interesting to note, especially as it pertains to queer characters. And then there was only one queer and disabled character um but it was the first time that they also counted one in general which i think is that one show of i forget what he what like disability he necessarily has but i think it's the show on netflix i forget what it's called as well but that might have been the one that they had counted which it's kind of a bittersweet report how it's only one, but also the fact that it is one, but also the fact that it's the only one that they've seen. Um, so you can take that as you will. Also, they reported that zero trans characters were found amongst the 118 films counted, um, but that has been constantly found in the past two reports. Um, like I said, this report focuses on films. I think most of the GLAD reports focus on films. So if you're wondering, like Pose, for example, um, I can see how it's not considered in this just because that is technically a TV show. I would be interested to see the report for 2021 um, to check and see like how that has changed regarding television shows. Um, but yeah, I guess with films... There have not been any trans characters found in the films that they reported, which is also um, interesting to note, because like I said, it's it's not all the films. It's only 118. But still, nonetheless, 
Um, and I guess, you know, it's also kind of sad to know that that is consistent. It's not really an outlier in any way. Um, and then lastly, Glad found two inclusive animated slash family films. Previously, it was zero. So it's kind of fluctuating of, you know, good and bad. So um, they did find, you know, like I said, two films that include queer or more inclusive um, characters within like animated or family films. So that could show something in how society is moving towards more inclusive stories for kids. Um, I know at this particular time, there's been other, I know that there's a bunch of shorts that um, are more inclusive or represent queer characters. I think I don't know. I don't know if it's a hundred percent true, but what that Luca film that came out, I think that that also is a more inclusive, or um, it is a story that includes queer characters or is centered around queer characters. So that would be interesting to know again for this year. But we're not going to see a report on this year anytime soon. Um, so yeah, so those are kind of the main points that I have for the twenty twenty report. Um, from the 2019 film. So this is a whole year late of films or of a report. Um, but I wanted to focus more on films. And I think that it's still important to see nonetheless, especially if you do your own research and look at how the report from 2020 holds up with this, be it in films or also in television shows. Um, and then lastly, I want to move on to new queer cinema. So like I said, this is a bit different of an episode regarding structure. New queer cinema is more of the like film history facts part. Um, but I want to talk about this particular movement within cinema and within queer history, because I think it is fundamental <laughs> in knowing about film and queer film history. Um, but I think also what comes out of this shows a lot for the films that we've talked about in this series, the films I'm going to be talking about today, but also the films that these films kind of influence going forward. So if you don't know, the new queer cinema is the more of the academic term that defines the um, cinematic movement of like the 90s. So... It was mostly queer-themed, independent filmmaking of the early 90s. It was coined by um, B. Ruby Rich in the Sight and Sound magazine in 1992. And like I said, this mostly categorizes um, independent filmmakers that focus their stories on queer people and queer characters. And it was kind of most prevalent in the early 90s. Films during this time usually shared themes such as the rejection of heteronormativity and the lives of LGBTQ plus characters or protagonists um, that also usually lived on the fringes of society. And so the identification for queer cinema emerged around the mid-90s um, through the influence of queer theory as well that became more prevalent. Um, during that time as well. And it was mostly in response to the AIDS crisis. So 
If you have not been following along with this podcast, I spoke about the AIDS crisis and what that did and looked like for queer cinema during that time and moving forward in our gay episode. Um, If you want to know more about the AIDS crisis relating to cinema history, I would definitely go check out that episode because I'd go more in depth about it, both the like the actual event, but also what that meant for filmmakers and how that looked on screen again during that time and going forward. So it was kind of seen as a response to that crisis. um, And it was very much associated with like avant-garde or underground films. Like I said, it's more heavily related towards the independent filmmakers. Um, So yeah. And some of the early queer cinema trailblazers, um, for like lesbian avant-garde filmmakers, there is, I am probably going to butcher these names, um, Ulrich Ottinger, possibly, um, Chantel Ackman, and Pratiba Palmer. I hope I'm saying those somewhat correctly. Um, I will probably include them in the Instagram post so you can actually look them up if I did butcher their names. Um, But those are some of the trailblazers, I guess, especially for lesbian avant-garde. There's also Rainer Warner Fassbender. It's films from the 1970s and 80s. Um, European art films. So those films in particular, yes, they are before the 90s, but I think that they, you know, again, trailblazers, they added, they were kind of the influencers of that time that led to, you know, this big boom. Um, And they added a more queer sensibility to film in general. So it might not have been particularly about specifically queer characters or queer stories but I think in their films they again they add this queer lens or queer film queer sensibility to film Um, and then the film The Kiss of the Spider Woman that came out in 1985 by Hector Babenko anyways that film um It examined the relationship between sexual, social, and political oppression. So that's also um, big during that time. And those are some of the main themes that you see going forward in the new queer cinema movement. So, like I said, sexual, social, and political oppression, those come up in the near queer cinema movement. Um, And that's kind of where that got its start in that film if that makes sense. Um, and then lastly, some of the notable films from the movement, um, The Watermelon Woman, Paris is Burning, and My Private Idaho. I think I've spoken about all of them. I might not have spoken about My Private Idaho, but uh, I know I spoke about the other two. Um, so if you want to know more about those and why they're so notable, those are both included. Actually, no, they're not. The Watermelon Woman is included in my lesbian episode Paris is burning I think that is included in the trans episode so 
If you want to learn about those films in particular, they're going to be in, in those two episodes. Um, and if I didn't speak about My Private Idaho, which would be in our gay episode, then that is another notable film to watch or to check out. Um, and then lastly of all, the 1990s ushered in the new queer cinema movement um, and it kind of faded out as queerness became more acceptable. So probably towards the um, late 90s or early 2000s, especially, that's kind of when you started to see that decrease in films. So yeah, that is just a really very, very, very brief overview of the new queer cinema movement. If that is particularly interesting to you, definitely check out or go, you know, check out some films that came out during that time. I know that I've discussed some films from that era, like I said, The Watermelon Woman, Paris is Burning, My Private Idaho, and I have some other films that we're going to be talking about today that came out of that period. And, you know, if you, the more research you do, you can actually find more about it. And I think that's a very important um, time in film history. It's also very important to note regarding queer history and especially queer cinema history. So yes, with all that being said, let's conclude to the rest of the episode. So I have a couple of films that I want to discuss. Um, I actually, I know I say this all the time, but I actually want to keep this episode pretty short just in our final conclusion of this entire series at large. Um, so these are kind of some of the films that I just did not get around to talking about um, that I think are particularly interesting or some films that I have found in this little hiatus that I've been on that I also want to discuss. Um, like I said, this is just a general queer episode, so it's not really focused on anything. It's just kind of a last hurrah. <laughs> so the first one that I want to talk about, which also coincides with the new queer cinema movement is the film Tongues Untied. Now, Tongues Untied came out in 1989. Yes, it is a bit early for the strict timeline of the new queer cinema movement, but as with everything in history, nothing is that, you know, concrete. Um, so I would still consider it part of the new queer cinema movement. It might be just, you know, again, one of the trailblazers that came out during that time. It is a, an experimental documentary film by Marlon T. Riggs, um, and it is kind of a poetic way of, I would say, exploring um, queerness or Black gay sexuality, um, while also coping with the oppressions that black gay men face during that time. Um, I think that it does like a really good job of using poetry, abstraction, and just um, non-conventional forms of filmmaking to explore different themes, different communities and conversations within the overarching queer community, but also within um, black gay spaces. Um, I watched it a while ago, so I'm not that well in tune with it, but I know that there were definitely a lot of parts that stuck out to me. Um, 
And I think the main thing that I want to talk about that film is the like poetic aspect of it or the the poetry of it. Um, there are some parts where they do speak. If it's not a literal poem, they speak very poetically. Um, and it's just the way that the film is conducted. It's It's not your conventional documentary film. It's not something that is just like an observer watching people go about their lives or, you know, it's not even unnecessarily a film where people sit down and talk about things. Um, if you, if you haven't seen the film, like I said, it's very experimental and it very much deals with abstraction. Um, and if you have seen, I think you would definitely agree that it's just non-conventional in the sense that you would think of a documentary today or you would think of a documentary at all. But I think that that abstraction, um, it reminds me of the idea of like queering cinema or queering any sort of media in the way that like your approach, your method or your outcome is non-conventional. It's, it doesn't follow, um, it like, it doesn't adhere to a strict structure or any sort of binary or expectation of what the form or the medium should be. And I think that that's definitely true with this film. And I think in a sense, because that is what this film does, it only further adheres to the idea of it being such a important queer film, but also in the way that it explores, like I said, being queer, being a gay black man in the 80s or early 90s. Um, and I think that that form of filmmaking is very important because, again, obviously you can tell important stories through conventional means, but I think what is such an important aspect or, I don't know, like queerness in and of itself is not like non-conventional in a bad sense, but like it, and not even like not the norm. Like I'm saying, it's, it doesn't have any of the negative connotations where, you know, it is bad. It is the other, but it is the other, you know? And so I think this film, it uses that idea of the other beautifully because it explores queerness in a way that, again, rejects heteronormativity. It, it rejects the the strict confines of structure. It rejects um, a lot of the binaries of like conventional documentary film form, if that makes sense. <laughs> I don't know if I'm sounding pretentious when I'm saying it, but I think that what I'm saying makes sense. Um, and again, I think that the way that Marlon, Marlon Riggs does it um, so beautifully is also through the mending of poetry. So like, I think that like the way he uses poetry and um, performance art, it also makes it like a beautiful exploration of queerness. But like I said, it does it in a way that fits the mode of the new queer cinema movement in that it kind of rejects 
the form. It kind of rejects heteronormativity by using abstraction or using experimental ways of documentary making to explore those ideas. If that all makes sense. <laughs> um, so yeah, I really like that movie. I watched it on the Criterion channel because they had a bunch of his films um, and work on there. I'm not sure if it's still on there today. Hopefully it is because that actually had been on my watch list for a couple of years and I wasn't able to find it anywhere. Um, and then when I saw that they were having it at the Criterion channel, I was, I had to jump on it and watch it. So if it's still there, I highly recommend it. I wish I could remember more of it to give you a really good analysis of it. Um, but I think that it's still very important, very, um, fundamental to the reading list of queer cinema films. Um, and I think that it is an important milestone, both in the queer cinema movement, but also in queer film um, history in general. So I definitely think that it is a movie that you should definitely watch, especially if you're particularly interested in queer films as well. So moving on, we're actually going to be talking about a short film. And I don't know if I've talked about short films before. I know in our trans episode was probably the first that I actually talked about TV shows, um, but I don't know if I've talked about a short film. And I also watched this on the Criterion channel. I think it is still on there. Um, and it is also a newer film. I think it came out in like 2018, possibly. Um, but it's called Pillars. And I really enjoyed Pillars because... One, it is one of our films that discusses or looks at the queer youth. I always want to make sure to include stories that talk about queer youth because I think that that is also important. Um, but it also explores queerness as at like the childhood age um, in a particularly interesting way. Because I think with like Tomboy, Tomboy really, it did a good job of showcasing, I don't know how to describe it, like showcasing a child um, grapple with their identity. And I think in some way you obviously like, you explore, you start to question identity, um, and what it what gender expression and what your gender identity is from the perspective of a child, which I think kind of helps you humanize queer children, um, as well as maybe give people a better understanding of what that exploration process or time period looks like for a lot of queer children um, but I think with Pillars particularly I like how it explores less of the gender identity part and more of the actual sexuality and that's where you really start to see early developments of sexuality just in general but also for queer children and I mean that as in like I don't know like I think a big part of exploring one's sexuality is like 
like your first kiss, you know? And so for a lot of people, it usually happens around like elementary, middle school-ish. And that's kind of when people start to, you know, that's when people start to think about like their first crush. Oh, I remember my first crush. It was in like the second grade or whatever. Um, or being like, oh, my first boyfriend was in the fifth grade or whatever. Like I think those moments, especially in elementary and middle school are the those are when you start to experience your first when it comes to recognizing yourself as like a sexual being um not necessarily particularly in regards to like sex but literally just in attraction and um your sexuality how you you look at people and the kind of people that you're interested in um and I think with pillars and particularly it's it explores that early developmental stage um, really nicely, especially regarding like queer identities. Um, so it's like a, about a little girl. She mostly is, it kind of all centers in church um, or heavily associated with church. And I think I watched all of these films a while ago, <laughs> um, but I think she befriends this other girl in like her little like church group um and they share a kiss I don't know like who started I don't really know the context of that kiss but I think through that you see her like you you see her start to realize like that she's kind of queer in some sense like not that not that explicitly but you just you just kind of see her come into her identity more through that experience um and i think ultimately she i think they like her parents find out or somebody finds out she's shunned in some way i forget the rest <laughs> um this episode this episode has been such like the context of this episode was like I I came up with the context of this episode such a long time ago I just had not had the time to film and like edit an episode properly so it's like my memory of these is not the best um and I couldn't necessarily watch all of these films but from what I remember from my notes you know this is what happened. I, I don't remember the actual like events, like the explicit events of every thing that I watched of every film that I watched, but I can remember a lot of the key points um, and a lot of reasons why I still think they are very important to discuss, if that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? So yes. So like I said, that one, I, I think that it's different from some of the other films that we discuss regarding queer youth because a lot of them, one, are centered on queer teenagers or young adults. Like I said, Tomboy, I think, is the only one that really focuses on a young child. Um, and Pillars is the same way. Like these are, if not elementary school, they are early, early middle school. Like these are not more than like the children are no more than like 10 or 11 years old, like absolute max. So I think it's important because of how it explores 
queerness at that age um but also different from tomboy in the fact that it's not necessarily focused on exploring or understanding gender gender identity as a child and more so explicitly just sexuality as a child um and also i think that it's interesting that it explores that in like the deep south or in um southern religious settings because like i said pariah i think pariah it was set in it wasn't necessarily the deep south but it was set in like a religious setting um her parents were very religious and she was kind of forced into that lifestyle in some degree what else Alex Strangelove, I don't think that that was religious at all. So I think Pariah is really the only other one that's religious. But like I said, that one is for um, a teenager. So it doesn't necessarily, like it does explore the early, actually, no, it doesn't. Actually, no, it doesn't. Because Pariah already knows that she's gay. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Pariah, the only thing that Pariah and Pillars share is the religious aspect. But Pariah is also 18 and she also already knows her sexuality going into the film. With this film, you see um, the young girl explore and understand it um, as the film progresses, all while being in the setting of either the Deep South or in the church or in religious setting. And so I think that, again, it's another way that you see how um, the environment of like the church or just very heavily religious settings people influences um has an impact on the queer youth but also you see an aspect of a young queer child grappling with their sexuality or exploring their sexuality while being in the confines of the church setting um and i say confines not in any particularly bad way but you literally see it as unfolds in the film that that is kind of you know a confine in of itself um so yeah and i think it's a really good film like i said it's a short film i think i saw it on the criterion channel i think that it should still be on there um but if not i don't know maybe you can find it on youtube or something <laughs> um and yeah it's one of the earlier films and i think it was directed by a young black woman Okay, so yeah, it came out in 2019, and it is directed by Haley Elizabeth Anderson, um, and yeah, it should still be on the Criterion channel, so definitely go watch that. I think it's really good, and like I said, it's different from the other ones in the fact that it explores sexuality as a young child, um, and also while being in the deep south or the church setting so yeah moving on i want to talk about the film mysterious skin um that also came out during the new queer cinema movement the director actually greg iraqi he is a big face of that movement um he a lot of his films deal with queer characters living on the fringes quite literally and mysterious skin is not an exception to that um mysterious skin was actually a very 
groundbreaking film for me to watch. I think that it really impacted me in the way that it's a deeply emotional film and it's a deeply unsettling film um, in the way that you literally watch it, if that makes sense. So Mysterious Skin is actually about these two boys who were groomed, raped, and molested as um, young children by their baseball coach. So one of the um, guys, he, he was the first victim, and it, I think it was something where his mom wasn't there to pick him up at a baseball game, and so his coach picked him up, and his coach took him home to like his house and that's where he kind of started grooming him um into having sexual relations with him so it became a thing where he befriended the little boy and they would like hang out a lot like he befriended the mom to get him to hang out with him and every time they would hang out he would coerce him into some sort of sexual act um and then later he i don't want to say he convinced but i guess like in the whole brainwashing of that little boy, um, the two of them convinced this other little boy to like hang out with them where then he made them perform sexual acts, um, both on each other or on him. And it's very uncomfortable to watch, um, especially with the way that it is filmed, but the way that it is filmed is also very great because like Gregor Rocky himself made sure that he protected the child actors. Um, I think in an interview, which I think was also on the Criterion channel, I also watched it on the Criterion channel, but I think in the interview about this film, he said that it was kind of tricky to maneuver through the film because for the kids, he made them believe that they were he like gave them a completely different script so they had no idea what they were necessarily not performing but like for them they were making a separate movie and he made sure to not put them in any compromising roles or anything with the adult actors that would kind of give it away for the kids so in a sense you know he kind of he really protected their innocence um not only in the film like in the world of the film but also in the filming process um, which I think is very good and it speaks to the ethics of this film but also to you know the meaning or sentimental value it has um, but also I think of like compared to like blue is the warmest color where that that film is very unethical in the way that it was shot and produced because of how the director treated or handled its actors. I think, again, it's necessarily good that that film went about it in that way because, especially when you're watching the film, I I had to ask that question. Like, how... Like, I'm watching the film and I'm like, how did like how is this legal <laughs> you know so I'm glad that that's mentioned because I think 
any person that sees beyond the film or it just feels so deeply by the film, you start to ask those questions of like, how was this film made? Um, and so I'm really glad to hear that he made sure to keep the innocence of the actors um, intact in creating that film. But with the movie itself, um, a big thing that it that stuck out to me was particularly how trauma affects you differently. Like I said, the two main characters are two boys that were um, groomed and molested by this older man. And you see how their two lives diverge from that main event. Um, the first boy that was brought along, he he's played by um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, if that helps, if you're watching the movie or if you see any shots about it. So he's played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and he takes the more hypersexual route of coping with trauma. I think when you talk about like sexual trauma, there's usually two main routes that people fall into when they're in like when they are coping with that sexual trauma a lot of people turn towards hypersexuality and a lot of people turn towards like asexuality um so for joseph gordon levitt's character he turns towards hypersexuality and ends up becoming a like male prostitute and so he's kind of known in his like hometown for sleeping with a lot of for sleeping with a lot of older men and then he later moves to New York um, where he kind of continues that for a little bit before another dramatic event happens um, and then for the the second boy that was brought along he kind of turns completely inward um, and becomes almost well he does become asexual but I guess where the film kind of delves off into a more interesting note is like he actually blacks out or like blocks out a lot of those traumatic moments so he doesn't know what happens to him he doesn't know that at a young age at this time he was molested or raped he just knows that there are points in times in his lives where he blacked out where his memory is completely gone um and so he convinces himself that he has been abducted by aliens. And so in this film, he is kind of trying to figure out where these gaps are coming from, what happens in between these gaps. And, you know, up until like the very end, he's kind of convinced that it's him having some sort of relationship with aliens. So he's trying to track down these aliens and all this stuff. Um, it's kind of hard to follow at first because you don't really realize that he is one of the kids that was um, sexually assaulted. And so you kind of see Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character going on a whole thing and then you switch to him and he's trying to find these aliens. You're kind of like, well, I don't understand what's going on. Um, but that's kind of his story. And so like I said, it's kind of interesting to note how trauma affects people differently. And I really enjoy that this film explores that. Um, because like I said, I think a lot of people see hypersexuality as the main um, result of sexual trauma. And I think in some way people like to demonize people that are very sexual or 
they like to look down upon people that may be, you know, very sexual, um, especially people that have experienced some sort of sexual trauma. And so I think, again, it, this film, it, it shows, it shows how, how that coping mechanism comes, um, forward, I guess, or how that coping mechanism comes out through sexual trauma, but it also kind of shows the counterpart to that, which is kind of retreating from, um, sex or sexuality in general. Um, and I think that it handles both of those situations very well. It humanizes both of them. Um, and I think in the end, you really start to understand the two characters more and how they came to these different conclusions. Um, and then you'd kind of just see that at the end, it's the result is from the same thing. You know, it just kind of breeds different um, and results for each character. Um, and then, like I said, the last thing. Oh, I guess I, I, I talked about it all because I talked about the new curse in a movement and then I talked about how it showcases sexual violence with kids while protecting the actor's innocence. I guess to speak about that just a little bit more, like I said, I think that this film does a really good job of protecting the child actors, um, both on screen but in in the production part of the film. Um, which again, you see that in an interview, but in the film, like, I think a big thing that stood out to me is that there's not a lot of scenes where the child actors and the adult actors are, are together, especially when it goes, especially when it's the, um, scenes that involve like sexual violence. Um, and I think that also like creates like an eeriness to, the film in and of itself because the moments where sexual violence is being enacted on them seeing the kids reactions is a bit it's like a bit um how do I describe it like it's 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 a bit separated from the act itself like you don't really get to understand the act itself from the kids performance which I think is the purpose um and I think that is what really does the job of keeping their innocence intact it's more of like the the overall like essence or overall like energy of it like the scenes have an erotic tone they have an erotic feel to it um even if you don't see like explicit explicit um acts being portrayed and like i said i think that that's good in protecting the actors, but also in creating that uncomfortability in the film itself, um, which kind of just makes it harder to watch in a sense, but I think it also makes it very impactful. So that's kind of all I have to say on the matter. Moving on to, well, I want to, I want to briefly, not even really discuss, but briefly mention, um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Because I think, again, in talking about queer films, there are some queer films that you just have to talk about. And I think the Rocky Horror Picture Show is one of those films. I only saw it once in full. I went to an actual like screening slash performance of it, um, which I think is 
the best way to experience it firsthand just because I think that overall environment is really great. I think that, that also says something about like queer media um, and yeah, like I don't know. The idea, it, it, it kind of relates to like drag like this performative element of queerness I'll say and so I think like those films like the Rocky Horror Picture Show um I mean it's not queer by any means but like the room how they do the same thing with the room I think obviously the Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of originated that whole idea um but I think that like that element of itself of how you experience the Rocky Horror Picture Show is important to the film, but also to queer cinema um, and queer media in general, because I think that that performance part of it is important to um, the experience of queerness, if that makes sense. But yeah, I just want to include the Rocky Horror Picture Show just because I think that that's important to include when talking about queer cinema. Um, and then lastly... Again, I just want to briefly talk about Jennifer's body. More so in the fact that it's kind of one of the only, like, feminist horror films. Um, and horror films that center around queer characters or queer protagonists that is not necessarily bad. I know that in... I forget which episode... Uh, we talked about it, but we talked about like, um, queer characters as kind of like villains, like horror film villains. Like a lot of it is like men dressing up as women to enact these horrible, um, crimes upon people or like the, what is it? Um, homicidal homosexual, like that trope that we talked about. And I think with this film, it doesn't feed into that trope um, because like, yes, it is like a queer character um, enacting these horrible violence. But I think, again, it takes a feminist perspective. It's much more in line with protecting women, um, if that makes sense. I'm not the most well-versed on it also I can't necessarily give you like the most like articulate um, exploration of it but I think what makes Jennifer's body stand out and not necessarily fall in the line of like horror film queer stereotypes is the fact that it takes a feminist approach to it and the fact that um the lens at which it it views its like villain is in much better light than I think other horror films that um, include queer characters do. It's not one of the films that like demonizes its queer characters. Um, it's a bit more coded. Um, like I think we've only kind of seen it as like a queer film as of late through other like explorations and I think later on the director maybe came out and said something um so it's still very much like a coded film but I think again in essence the film doesn't 
one having its protagonist be queer coded or having its protagonist be a um, queer characters I think definitely helps also as I keep saying the feminist turn to it um, and the fact that it doesn't the movie doesn't seek to demonize or beat down women or queer characters um, I think that that's what really sets it apart from a lot of the queer stereotypes or codings of queer characters in like horror films that um, we've seen throughout history that have kind of necessarily plagued queer characters in a negative light, if that makes sense. So yeah, that's kind of all I wanted to talk about kind of briefly. Um, in closing out this series I just want to say thank you if you are still watching if you follow along through this series I know that we discussed a lot of heavy topics and just a lot of topics in general throughout the films and tv shows and short films that we discussed um I okay so I think I discussed it in the beginning of this series and like the introductory episode but you know as we close out I never want anything I say to come off as offensive um, I'm very interested in queer culture, queer cinema, queer film history, and so everything that I watch, read, learn, discuss is from genuine interest and, I don't know, appreciation. Um, so I don't think I know it all. I just discussed some of the things that I've seen in some of the movies and TV shows and films that I've watched. Um, and all of this is also to open up dialogue. So if you have any thoughts that you want to talk about regarding any of the films that I talked about, I would love to hear it. I always want to, you know, talk about films. This is why this podcast is here is to discuss films and the different elements that I think they bring to the medium at large. Um, but yeah, I've had so much fun talking about all of these queer films obviously this is not the end all be all i would love to revisit this series sometime in the future um to discuss more also to discuss some of these films with other people and i'm so 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 glad to be back um and i cannot wait for what is to come for this podcast and i'm just so glad to be finishing up this series um so yeah with all that being said thank you for tuning in hopefully you finish the end of this episode i look forward to seeing you in the next one and i think that's all i have to say so peace out girl scout <laughs>